Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello and welcome to the Commonwealth Club. My name is Lara Bazelon. I'm a law professor at the University of San Francisco School of Law, where I direct two clinics, a criminal and juvenile justice clinic and a racial justice clinic. I'm thrilled to be back moderating another amazing Commonwealth Club program, this time with Linda Greenhouse, who needs no introduction, but she is, of course, one of the most respected if not the most respected, analyst and interpreter of all things United States Supreme Court. She is now a lecturer in law at Yale University after spending four decades at the New York Times. And we are here to talk about her new book, which is called Justice on the Brink, The Death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, The Rise of Amy Coney Barrett, and The Twelve Months That Transformed the Supreme Court, which could not be more timely given what's coming up in the news. And so an important housekeeping note before we get started, if you have a question for Linda or I, you can put it in the Zoom chat and they're going to get forwarded to me during the program and I can kind of shuffle them in and make sure to try to ask everybody's questions. Okay, so Linda, welcome. Happy to be here. Thanks, Laura. I'm going to jump right in because tomorrow is a big day at the United States Supreme Court the court will be hearing oral arguments in a Mississippi case. There's a statute whose constitutionality is at stake. That statute bans abortions except in extremely limited circumstances at 15 weeks. So can you bring us up to speed on the facts, the legal questions, and what is at stake here? Yeah, and I'll just back up to the to the subtitle of my book, which you read, uh, which ends with 12 months to transform the Supreme Court. And one piece of evidence of how the arrival of Amy Coney Barrett in the court's last term transformed the Supreme Court is the fact that this case is on the court's calendar at all. Because what Mississippi did in banning abortion after 15 weeks of pregnancy, in other words, months before a fetus is viable, was breach the the firewall that has protected the right to abortion for almost 50 years since Roe versus Wade and since the Planned Parenthood case in 1992, that is to say, before viability, the state can make, you know, walk on their hands and recite all kinds of crazy stuff and listen to uh, inaccurate informed consent and all that kind of thing. But at the end of the day, the woman has a right to terminate the pregnancy. So that's just been a key thing. And, And red states have been trying for the last number of years to breach that firewall or to, or to enact other unconstitutional statutes. And lower courts, of course, have struck them down as a very conservative appeals court struck down the Mississippi law. And the court has refused to take these cases. Why? Well, because why would the court take these cases? They're flatly, these laws are flatly unconstitutional. So all of a sudden, the case is now about to be argued tomorrow. There's only reason for the court to have granted Mississippi's petition agreed to hear the state's appeal is there's a critical mass of justices, maybe five, maybe six, who want to change the law. There's no other reason to have taken the case. They turned down all the other cases like this. So that's where we stand. And Mississippi has, you know, various arguments. Things change. Uh, This law is, you know, for the good of women, which is a very strange thing for the state of Mississippi to say, because on any measure of uh, outcomes for pregnancy and 
early childhood, Mississippi ranks at the very, very bottom of the 50 states. So they seem to care a lot about 15-week fetuses, but they sure don't seem to care very much about babies once they're born or the women who became who become mothers in the course of, of childbirth. Um, so it's a question about the court's fidelity to precedent. It's a question about, I mean, the deeper question, of course, is about the role of women in, in society. Um, you know, we can take this any, any way you like, but it's, it's, a, it's a very, very important moment uh, for the social, political, law-related uh, history of, of this country. I want to take it in several directions, if that's okay with you, and stay here for a minute. You talked about how this case is really about a flagrantly unconstitutional statute. We've been here before, and there have been people who have said, okay, Roe is doomed at various different points, including the Casey decision in 1992. But as you say, the composition of the court here is qualitatively different. And I guess I have to ask you, in retrospect, how you feel about what you call Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's spectacularly bad bet that by not resigning when Obama was president, she could stay long enough to have another Democratic president appoint her successor and go on in that time to be, as you say, the notorious RBG and be known for her fiery dissents. I guess the question is, at what at what cost you talk about how she was one of the only people, maybe the only justice after Bork, who when asked during her confirmation hearing about her opinion about Roe versus Wade, actually answered the question directly and said that she supported it. She said, quote, women's ability to realize their full potential is intimately connected to their ability to control their reproductive lives. That very principle, as you indicated, seems like it's at stake here. A question that I have for you is if whether you think that there are a majority of votes that agree with that position. Do you think that these Trump justices agree that women's ability to realize their full potential is intimately connected to their ability to control their reproductive lives? I don't think there's a majority of votes on the court for that proposition. Uh, you know, Mississippi makes the strange argument that, well, maybe that was true back at the time that the court decided Roe because women didn't have many opportunities for advancement in the workplace and so on and so on. But now things are great. You know, women can do anything. And so why do they need the right to abortion? I mean, it, it, it's hard for me to articulate the argument because it makes so little sense to me, actually. But Laura, I'm going to push back on, on the way you, you started that question, uh, because, you know, there is a school of thought and your question reflects it, that, you know, we, we'd be safe if only Ruth Bader Ginsburg had retired back when Obama was president. You know, like where to begin with that question? We'd be safe if only Democrats had mobilized enough to elect Hillary Clinton in 2016. We'd be safe if there would have been some way of pushing back against Mitch McConnell's lockup of the Supreme Court vacancy when Scalia died. Series of events. And so, you know, I think the, the, the worst you can say about RBG is that she placed a bad bet. And her bet was Hillary Clinton was going to be elected in 2016. How many of us did not assume that? And, you know, if she had managed to hang on for another four months, President Joe Biden would have been able to fill the vacancy. So there are so many contingencies. And I'll add one more thing. Had she retired when the, the male professoriate rose up and told her to retire, we wouldn't have had her voice. We wouldn't have had the, quote, notorious RPG. We wouldn't have had her 
mobilizing dissenting opinions for the last seven or eight or 10 years. And personally, um, I would have missed that quite a lot. She was speaking to history and sure, she was speaking in dissent. She was already in dissent. Uh, so, you know, I just want to put those thoughts on the table for people who think, oh, if only RBG had retired when we told her to, we would have been in better shape. I'm glad you pushed back. I'm going to push back on me a little more and say, I feel like there is a fair amount of blame to go around. I mean, one thing I'm curious to know your opinion on is the Democrats, I think, utter failure to transform the judiciary when they had the chance to do so. That, you know, Obama's appointees, first of all, weren't that numerous. And second of all, had no way to match the ideological rightward tilt of Trump's. He appointed these very centrist, basically prosecutor and private law partner folks to the court. In no way sort of was that at all a counterbalance or the liberal lions that we know of the past. That was not a priority. Mitch McConnell 100% made it his priority to shove these justices through and judges on the lower courts, which in some ways is more important considering that the vast majority of cases never make it all the way up to the Supreme Court. And I don't know what you think about this, but there's certainly an argument that by failing to prioritize the judiciary, by failing to be brave in their selection of nominees, by failing to come up with some kind of counterbalance to the Federalist Society, it's actually the Democrats who have nobody but themselves to blame and trying to shove an older justice out of the way and then blame her for not retiring is really, I think, a cheap shot and passing the buck. That's the counter, right? We are on the same page, my dear. I completely agree with you. And you know, it's a, it's a deeper question. I mean, it goes back to Bill Clinton, who was very lax in filling the vacancies that he had. Um, you know, the Republicans have been so strategic and so intentional. So while Obama was president, he was pretty slow off the dime to fill vacancies himself. They the, the once the Republicans took back control of the Senate, uh, they held seats open so that. When Trump came in, there were dozens of vacancies. And then all the senior, not all, many of the senior Republican appointed judges on the lower courts who had been appointed back back to Reagan uh, took senior status, which opens up a vacancy. There was a wave of everybody going senior so that Trump was able to fill more than 200 vacancies on the lower federal courts. Now, I'll just say this. That lesson was learned by Joe Biden, who, of course, had once been chair of the Judiciary Committee, and his chief of staff, Ron Klain, who was his chief of staff back when he was in the Senate. And, you know, President Biden hasn't gotten sufficient credit, I think, for the fabulous way he's been proceeding in filling the vacancies that he has. He's now up to, I think, the 10th round of judicial nominations, and these are fabulous they are getting confirmed. I mean, the Senate is awful close, but they're pulling out all the stops and, and these nominees are getting confirmed. And so, you know, whatever happens for the remainder of the Biden administration, he is leaving a very decided and important legacy on, on the federal courts. I agree. And I could stay on this topic all day. One final point about Biden is that he's actually appointing former federal public defenders and civil rights attorneys. And that is for me as a former federal public defender and a lifelong advocate for people who are accused, a welcome relief because the bench is just crowded to the brimful with former AUSAs, former DAs, 
former partners at these giant firms. And it's just, we badly need not just diversity in terms of the way that you normally think of diversity, which we badly do, especially after all these Trump appointees, just one white man after another, but we also badly need practice experience. And actually you point out that the only person who's ever tried a case who's currently on the Supreme Court is Justice Sotomayor. But the questions are already flooding in and I'm still not done with Mississippi. So I want to ask you my question about Mississippi and then the ones in the chat. Okay. So In terms of what we're looking at tomorrow, what kinds of questions should we expect from, I think, what we could consider maybe the three crucial votes here, or four, which would be Amy Coney Barrett, Brett Kavanaugh, Neil Gorsuch, those are the Trump appointees, and then, of course, John Roberts. What are you looking for in the questioning, and is that in any way going to tip uh, the hand of these justices and what they might be thinking about? Well, of course, the the money question is, is the viability question, because my, my opinion, you could get an argument going on this, but my opinion is that if they breach the viability, what I call firewall, Roe against Wade is functionally overturned. They may not say, in fact, I'd be a little surprised, not shocked at this point, but maybe a little surprised if we see the words in the eventual opinion, you know, Roe against Wade was was wrong the day it was decided, it's wrong today, and we hereby overturn it. What what I'm quoting, by the way, is what Justice Kennedy said in Lawrence against Texas, which overturned Bowers against Hardwick, which was the anti-gay rights uh, opinion from 1986. In 2003, they repudiate that. They find that the due process right gives uh, the right of LGBT people to their intimate relations. And, and Kennedy said, I think this is an exact quote, Bowers against Hardwick was wrong when it was decided. It is wrong today and we overturn it. Will we hear that about Roe? I think probably not. But if they breach that firewall, 15 weeks, why not 10 weeks? Why not the Texas vigilante law, which is six weeks? Why not? I think I read the other day that Arkansas has a bill pending for zero weeks. You know, uh, the one thing that the, the question that is most commonly asked by a justice of a lawyer appearing before the court is, what's your limiting principle, right? Because the court knows it's not just deciding the dispute that's in front of them. They're deciding, if we, if we buy what you're selling us, what about the next case and the case after that and the case after that? The Supreme Court is making law, not just resolving disputes. So what is the governing principle if viability isn't there? And I'm kind of hard-pressed to think of one, and so I think that's a functional overturning of Roe. And what I want to hear from the court is how they're going to approach that question. This is a question from the chat, and the person asks you, does the Mississippi law outlaw chemically-induced abortions the morning after pill administered by the women without a prescription Wait, I want to make sure I heard that. For self-administered abortion, is that, was that the question? Yes. Uh, well, you know, the states are, are, are going after that. So um, under the FDA label for uh, medical abortion, the two pills that are prescribed, um, the, I believe the label calls for, based on the scientific evidence, uh, that uh, those pills could be used for abortion up to 10 weeks of pregnancy. So Texas 
has passed a law, didn't get much notice, kind of in the shadow of SB8, that limits the use of medical abortion to, I believe, six weeks. Now, I think there's a federal preemption question there. I mean, the Food and Drug Administration sets the rules for the approval of medication and the, you know, the FDA prevails. I don't know whether there's somebody's uh, bringing a lawsuit. I, I assume somebody is. So, uh, you know, the states are going to try every way they can to make it extremely difficult for women to obtain the pills and, you know, whatever. Will they be obtained? Yeah, they will. I mean, women in Texas are going over the border to Mexico where you can buy anything in a local drugstore, um, you know, and, and there's various contingencies being played out by uh, within the pro-choice community. But, you know, that's not the kind of regime we want in the country. Uh, you know, abortion, I believe, is the most common medical procedure in the country, uh, as, as, as you know. I mean, the statistics are that about a third of all American women will have an abortion sometime during their reproductive lifetime. So, you know, we're talking about a very common procedure uh, that would be driven underground by, you know, a vote of five or six justices. I, I don't know. This is not the country that you and I grew up in. I was going to save this question for the end, but I really can't help myself, which is when you talk about this particular issue in your writing now, your post-2008 writing, when I hear you speak publicly, you're a very passionate advocate. What I hear you saying is you're a passionate advocate for women's rights, and maybe I'm going a leap too far, but also that you're a passionate advocate for, for the right of bodily autonomy. Um, do you feel like that was something that you were not really able to do when you were covering the court's abortion jurisprudence as a reporter at the New York Times because you were in a role of reporting, whereas now you're somewhat removed. And in fact, your job, part of your job is to write an opinion column for the New York Times, I think twice a month. So are you freer to express how you actually feel now? And, and if that's true, was that a reason in part why you, you left so that you could actually uh, have more of an opinion on issues like this and other issues? No, I actually left because they put a very good buyout on the table. And I, and I, uh, I, I rightfully deduced there was never going to be such a lucrative offer again. So I put my hand up and took it. Um, so, no, I mean, uh, the question is quite right. Uh, uh, being a, a daily news reporter and being an opinion columnist are two different things. Uh, so, um, so yeah, I mean, I've always felt strongly about the right to abortion and people who want to know more about how I feel about it can read a little book I wrote kind of dealing with this issue. It's called Just a Journalist. came out in 2017. Uh, but, I, but I'll say this. I mean, even within the, the kind of zone of... Um, objective daily mainstream reporting, which is something I, I believe in. Mm -hmm. Wherein does objectivity lie? And my strong belief is that the role of the daily mainstream journalist is to inform readers of the true state of affairs insofar as the reporter understands the true state of affairs, which is to say, uh, Go back to the, the the period when states were passing um, laws that required 
doctors who perform abortions to have admitting privileges at local hospitals, right? And the states would say, this is for the sake of women's health. We're trying to protect women. Now, we knew that wasn't true. They were trying to shut down the clinics because they knew that in these states, doctors simply could not get admitting privileges at hospitals, A, and B, that doctors who perform abortions don't need admitting privileges at hospitals. So, so many of the stories said, oh, on the one hand, states say it's for women's health. On the other hand, the clinics say, no, it's not. Well, in my opinion, that's bad reporting because those stories needed to inform readers, by the way, abortion Doctors who perform abortions don't need admitting privileges. They can't get them. This is a cynical effort to shut down the abortion infrastructure that allows women to exercise their constitutional right. So, you know, I, I think there's not maybe such a bright line uh, between those two kinds of writing if the daily mainstream news reporter realizes that she can't allow herself to be used by the kind of um, PR machine for one side or another side, just let the readers in on the facts. I mean, look at the, um, uh, the voter ID issue, you know, uh, when that first emerged from the Republican Party, oh, we need voter ID because there's a lot of fraud. Well, no, actually, there's no fraud of the kind that a voter ID law would would intercept. They're just not. I'm not going to show up at the polls and say, hello, I'm Laura Bassalon, I'm here to vote. I mean, that's like ridiculous. We know it's ridiculous. But so many stories said, oh, the states say it's because there's fraud. Well, it's true. That was true. That's a true fact. The states were saying that, but they weren't saying it with honesty. So that's a long answer to that question. You touched, obviously touched a button of mine, but it's, um, it's something I invite people to think more about when they, when they um, think that there's a sharp line between fact and opinion. You touched on this in, in your answer when you mentioned voting rights. This is another question they're pouring in from our audience. They want to know, in your opinion, what other issues besides abortion should we be most aware of with the current makeup of this court? I would name religion. And uh, in, in my book, I talk a great deal about the trend, which, which really accelerated during the term that I'm writing about, uh, uh, toward the privileging of religion above all other claims in civil society, above a claim not to be discriminated against on various uh, grounds, whether LGBT or disability or whatever, um, the, the right... Um, uh, to have you know, public health experts tell us what to do during a pandemic. You want to limit the number of people who can gather in an indoor space. Oh, but if it's a church, we have to overturn that and, and this kind of thing. So there's a case that's going to be argued um, next week, uh, a, a case from Maine about um, uh, the right, uh, uh, about the channeling of public money to pay tuition at religious schools and I'm sure that the religious schools are going to prevail in this case, um, and and that'll be the that'll mark the culmination of a project of the Roberts Court, this case by case, a couple steps at a time, a couple steps at a at a time, 
that is really going to upend what had been the kind of settlement that when it comes to parochial schools, um, yes, the, the government can provide, um, you know, busing or secular textbooks or release time for students to leave class and go to their religious organizations and get religious education, but you're not going to directly channel public money to cover religious school tuition. And uh, that's where we're at right now. So I would call that to people's attention. Uh, Second Amendment, gun rights, big case argued earlier this month. Um, and uh, and voting rights, as, as you said, the, the voting rights case that came down at the end of the last term that I'm writing about, the Arizona case was uh, very disturbing and uh, makes it's going to make it very difficult to bring successful challenges to the voter suppression efforts that are accelerating around the country right now. So if, if I, I, I expect that our audience has been following the Second Amendment case. Uh, this is a case from New York about what restrictions can be put on licenses for people to carry concealed weapons. Um, and I think the answer is going to be not very many restrictions. I think the, the rather strict New York law is going to be struck down. I think it does make sense maybe for us to pause and you to talk about the significance of the Philadelphia Fulton County case, because I think it's been somewhat overlooked. And it's interesting, both because of the substance, but also because of how the majority opinion came together in Amy Coney Barrett's role. Yeah, it's a fascinating case. I actually write quite a lot about it uh, in, in the book. Uh, so this was a case um, about uh, religious exercise and LGBT discrimination. So Philadelphia uh, has a clause in the contract that all of the private agencies that it contracts with to do various services uh, sign uh, that uh, requires them not to discriminate on various grounds, uh, race, sex, religion, sexual orientation. So it turned out that a Catholic social service agency in Philadelphia that had a contract with the city uh, to find uh, foster parents for children who were in the city's custody um, refused to consider same-sex married couples as potential foster parents. And Philadelphia said, uh, you know, you've got to follow this contract. And the social service agency said um, that would violate our religious belief. We can't follow it. So this came up to the court as a question about whether the court should overturn uh, an important precedent from uh, 1990, a Scalia opinion called Employment Division Against Smith. So Employment Against Division Against Smith holds that when you have a law that's a general law, it, it's, a, uh, it's, it's a neutral law, it doesn't single out religion, applies to everybody, of general applicability, the free exercise guarantee of the First Amendment doesn't give you a right to opt out, doesn't provide you an exemption uh, from such a law. That uh, holding Employment Division against Smith has been very, very unpopular on the religious right. Huge uh, social and political pressure to get the court to overturn it. So that was really the question in, in, in the case, case called Philadelphia against Fulton. The court did not overturn it. Roberts actually, I mean, you got to give the man credit. He pulled a rabbit out of a hat. 
He said, well, we don't have to overturn it because actually uh, this contract was not a neutral contract of general applicability. It contained a potential exception uh, that there could be an exception to the non-discrimination clause. Now, P.S., it was an exception that had never been used and was just like just sitting there with empty words. But there's an exception. And that means that employment division against Smith doesn't apply. The social service agency wins. Uh, the city loses. And Roberts got nine votes for that. I'm here to say that Justice Ginsburg would not have put up with that charade. But anyway, the rest of them did, except Justice Alito wrote a very long, very angry opinion saying this was our chance to overturn employment division against Smith. We didn't do it. We wimped out. You know, it was a concurrence, not a dissent, because he agreed with the bottom line, which was that the city loses. But it was such a long, such an angry dissent that, of course, it raised the question of had he once thought he was writing for the majority, but we, we have no way of knowing that. So what's very interesting, and the question that Laura posed is, um, Amy Coney Barrett did not join Alito in his angry opinion. She wrote her own opinion, and she wrote very little during the term. This was the most important thing she wrote during the term, I, I think it's fair to say. She said, before we go ahead and overturn something, we better make pretty sure we know what we're going to replace it with. And we don't know. And so we're not going to go down that route. And I fully subscribe to the opinion written by Chief Justice Roberts. So, you know, there's a couple ways to read that. Uh, I chose in the book to read it as a kind of a declaration of independence, that she's like, Sam Alito, take a memo. Uh, you don't get my vote. You know, we're, we're, we have a lot in common. We're both judicial conservatives. We're both conservative Catholics. But my vote is not yours. And, you know, we'll see. I mean, she did the same thing about a month ago. Uh, a, a case came up on the court shadow docket, the emergency docket, from a group of healthcare workers in Maine who were being required as a condition of keeping their job uh, to get the COVID vaccine. And they said, oh, we have a religious objection and we want the court to intervene. The court did not intervene over the dissenting opinion of Justice Alito and Justice Gorsuch. And, uh, and Justice Barrett again said, you know, this is not the time and place for us to brace in our way into this unfolding dispute. We don't know enough about it and, uh, and we're just not going to take up that cause right now. It doesn't mean they might not take it up later. There's a lot of cases in that pipeline. But so twice she has kind of pushed back against Alito's aggression. And it's very interesting. Just two data points. We don't know enough about her. But, um, you know, as I hope is clear, um, I really have an open mind. I'm eager to see how she reveals herself in the very, very consequential position that she finds herself in. It's very interesting. One area of the law where I'm interested to see where she comes down, particularly because she wrote a very interesting opinion <clears throat> dissent on the Seventh Circuit concerning a tangentially related issue about the right to bear arms. And that's what I wanted to ask you about next is, is Second Amendment jurisprudence, which, you know, up until Heller had really been almost a non-existent 
issue before the court. And then after Heller, they have turned down case after case that has presented them with the opportunity to expand the right to bear arms beyond what they said in that case. They've now taken up a new case out of New York, and it looks like it could be extremely consequential. And I'm wondering how you think that case is going to come down, what we can expect in terms of what Clarence Thomas has called this second class right, whether it will attain first class status, particularly in light of the fact that guns are still very, very much in the news these days in the United States. Yeah, well, the, I think the, the week or the month that they took, that they agreed to hear this New York case, and as, as you suggest, they had, it's very much like the abortion case. They had turned down case after case until they, I think, were confident that they have the votes to do what the conservatives want, want to do. Uh, the very week they took it, there were something like three page one gun massacres in various parts of the country. You know, it was really this is really a time to take up a case that that will enlarge the ability of people to walk around with concealed weapons, which I think is going to be the outcome of this case. Um, so it, it just seems like a, a crazy time for them to be going down that road. But um, as you suggest, the conservatives led by Justice Thomas and Justice Alito have been pushing, pushing, pushing and. I have to think that it was the chief justice who was sort of holding back. Um, Amy Barra comes on the court. Now, you mentioned her dissenting opinion in a case called Cantor on the, on the Seventh Circuit. I don't read that case as some other people do to show that she's kind of some kind of gun nut. It doesn't say that. It's a very nuanced opinion. Very subtle and, you know, pretty darn good opinion. Uh, The question in that case was the constitutionality under the Second Amendment of the federal law that prevents people convicted of felonies from carrying guns. Um, And the convicted person in this case had been convicted of a white collar offense, Medicaid fraud, Medicare fraud. And, uh, you know, he never had been a physical danger to anybody and didn't figure to be one in the future. So he brought this lawsuit uh, challenging the constitutionality of the, what's called the felon in possession bar. Um, and uh, the law was upheld uh, by the Seventh Circuit, the majority of the panel. And she, um, she wrote a dissenting opinion that basically goes back to sort of common law about uh, the law of who could have a gun, who could be barred from having a gun. And she kind of played it out um, that this this individual with this particular profile was not the kind of person who would have been barred from owning a gun. It was, you know, pretty interesting. But if, I, I don't think it says anything about um, wh- whether she's fully on board the, uh, the Thomas and Alito position that basically. Uh, basically anything goes. We'll see. The case was argued a month ago. Uh, The argument did not look good for the New York law, which was being challenged. Um, It's a law that says that in order to get a license to carry a concealed weapon, you need to show not only that you're a person without a criminal record who knows how to handle a gun, but that you have a special need for self-protection that, re- that, that requires you to be able to walk around with a concealed weapon. There's something about your situation that distinguishes you from the general law-abiding population. I 
think a half a dozen other states have such a law. Most states don't. Most states are more relaxed about it. And they say simply, you know, you've got to show you're, you're not a criminal in order to get a license to carry a concealed weapon. So New York's a bit of an outlier. But, um, you know, a question came up, well, what about a concealed weapon on the subway? You know, what, there have been, you know, shots in Times Square within the last, you know, couple of weeks. So it's, it seems to me the timing is terrible. But I think the, I think the writing's on the wall as to how that case is going to come out. This next question from an audience member has to do with the role that the Supreme Court could play for those of us who are worried that the United States is headed toward an autocracy. And I guess I could add on to that this idea that, you know, they've been rather Trump averse. He he appointed these three justices. He said the elections can end up in the Supreme Court and I need people who are going to install me as president come hell or high water. That didn't happen. Does that mean we should be hopeful that even though this is an extremely conservative court and he appointed one third of the people on it, we should be confident that they are going to be a bulwark against autocracy and against flagrantly unconstitutional attempts to say, steal another election? Well, I don't think we should rely on the Supreme Court saving us from ourselves, really. And, uh, you know, I think it was a pretty close call, actually. Um, You know, as it turned out, the court, including the three Trump justices, did not do Trump's bidding. Uh, something that, you know, enraged him. And I think he's still going around announcing, uh, you know, I fought for these people and I, you know, where were they when I needed them kind of thing. You know, so the whole thing was very ham-handed and the cases were badly presented. Uh, Some of them were just kind of ridiculous. Uh, Even uh, a Trump-appointed judge on the Third Circuit, uh, Stefanos Bibas, said, you know, we need some kind of evidence and there's no evidence here, you know, that kind of thing. That, but that's not to say that um, better presented cases in, in, in the future could, um, could get enough votes. I mean, I'm not confident. You know, there's this theory out there that, um, that, the, that a majority of the court has never accepted, but made its, its first emergence in modern times in the 2000 election case, Bush against Gore, that um, state legislatures uh, really have the last word on uh, election procedures. So what was happening in the run-up to the election last a year ago, the 2020 election, was that it was was state courts, uh, or in some cases governors, but basically state courts that were expanding uh, the time limits for mail-in ballots and so on against the will of the Republican majority legislatures. And, uh, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of effort to um, kind of institutionalize, constitutionalize uh, the ability of state legislatures to um, to write the final rules, um, no matter what other organs of state government think is called for. And with the kind of gerrymandering that we see going on right in front of our noses on the basis of the 2020 census, um, uh, states are going to be pretty solidly, state legislatures are going to be pretty solidly in Republican hands. 
And so to privilege the legislatures is to embed uh, the Republican, uh, you know, power over over elections. And that's certainly something to watch very closely. I wanted to ask you about the court and race. It seems to me, at least when I look at the barbs that are going back and forth, particularly between Roberts and Sotomayor, that the issue of race on the court is just as polarizing as the issue of race is maybe in the broader public. I'm wondering if you can talk about that in the context of affirmative action jurisprudence, where you think that's headed, but also in particular, these two justices and their very diametrically opposed views about how to deal with racial inequities in our society. Yeah, so there wasn't there wasn't a race case in the last term by, by happenstance. Uh, I mean, the Arizona voting rights case obviously touched on, on, on race, but it wasn't directly about, about race. Um, the, the kind of cobbled up challenge to Harvard's admission policies uh, reached the court uh, early in the term and the court kicked that can down the road by asking the Biden administration to, given its views. I mean, that was just, I think, the court saying, okay, we've got abortion, we've got guns coming up this fall. We don't need affirmative action on top of that. Uh, they didn't need to ask the Biden administration for advice. Uh, it was kind of silly. I mean, if the court had granted review in that case, the Biden administration would have been perfectly free. In fact, it would have been perfectly ex expected to file a brief telling the court what its views were anyway. Uh, the court may well yet take that case, the Harvard case, uh, or the North Carol University of North Carolina case, which is also pending. And so um, they could take it, you know, rather soon, maybe even in time to decide this term. So um, it's still a very live issue. But to your, to your specific question, um, yes, I mean, uh, John Roberts and Sonia Sotomayor had quite a set to uh, in competing opinions in, in, a, in a case from Michigan uh, uh, back a few years ago. Uh, it seemed to be a lot of, a lot of bad blood there. Um, yes, it's very, it is a polarizing question, but I think there's now a solid majority uh, to get rid of affirmative action if the right case presents itself. I, I, I would be very surprised if affirmative action survived a, a, a kind of a head-on collision uh, at the Supreme Court, which is not to say that any specific case might be that vehicle. The Harvard case would be a bad vehicle because there was an extensive trial, extensive fact-finding by the district court, upheld by the Court of Appeals, um, showing that Harvard did not, in fact, engage in racial discrimination in its admissions policies. Uh, but uh, there, there, there's blood on the water and there will be there'll be more cases for sure. This question is about Justice Kavanaugh and you refer to the confirmation battle that he went through without getting into it, I'm assuming because that really would have been a book in and of itself and perhaps just too much of a side path. But the question is about whether you believe he's gotten over what happened to him at the confirmation or whether you think he'll want to exact some kind of vengeance or double down on certain positions. And I think sort of by analogy, I suppose that question also asks you to kind of look back at Justice Thomas's record and, and, and provide a similar analysis. Oh, you know, I mean, 
That's the kind of question that I really can't answer because it would be very presumptuous of me to to know what's inside the heart and mind of these individuals. So um, I actually have no idea uh, whether he's, quote, gotten over it. Um, you know, I'm willing to evaluate him based on what he does on the court. Uh, but whether that's shaped by his confirmation experience, I mean, I have no idea. I wouldn't presume to say. On a somewhat related topic, when President then President Trump nominated Amy Coney Barrett, they had a big ceremony in the Rose Garden, which of course ended up being a super spreader event. And he very quickly pivoted from talking about her intellectual achievements and qualifications to talking about why it was so important to have her as the devoted mother of seven, and in particular, the mother of school-aged children. That was something that had never happened before with a female justice on the court. I'm wondering what you make of those comments. Do you think that is an important qualification? Do you think that is something that folks should take into account when they're nominating women and mothers to be judges? No, I mean, I think it has nothing to do with anything. Uh, and, and I don't think Trump thought it had anything to do with anything, but it was his way of, um, you know, kind of making her very appealing uh, to, to the country, right? And, and, and she was very appealing to the country. Uh, so, you know, it was a kind of a subliminal way, I think, of bringing her religion, her devout Catholicism into the frame um, the, you know, the, the, the question that can't be talked about. Uh, so it was, you know, kind of a subtle move from a very unsubtle politician, um, you know, and it, and it worked, right? Because uh, if, if you manage to sit through any of the confirmation hearing, uh, every Republican senator praised her motherhood and marveled at her, you know, I don't know, her fecundity or whatever, but, um, it just made for a kind of a silly show. Yes, although to be fair, it wasn't just the Republicans. Diane Feinstein did a fair amount of gushing herself. And I wonder too, at least when it's coming from the Republicans and it's coming from Donald Trump, if there is a more implicit argument being made. And that argument really goes to this point that Justice Ginsburg is so well known for, which is saying that a woman's autonomy and her future and her accomplishments are very much tied up with her ability to control her reproductive life. And it seems like holding up as an example, a mother of seven is trying to kind of pointedly refute that and say, well, no, you can have as many children as you want. And still, don't worry, ladies, you can ascend as high as the United States Supreme Court. Oh, that's interesting. That's even more subtle than I than I gave Trump credit for. Um, yeah, I mean, that's just interesting. Maybe that, I mean, what, what I would say was religion was the elephant in the room. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned Diane Feinstein. So when um, Amy Coney Barrett was nominated in the spring of 2017, she was one of Trump's first nominees for, for the federal appeals courts. Um, Diane Feinstein interrogated her about whether she would be able to set aside her religious beliefs and do the job of judging. And, uh, and Feinstein said to her, um, I'm afraid that the, I think this is an exact quote, the doctrine lives loudly within you. I think the dogma even. The dogma, the dogma. sorry, you're right. The dogma. It was very ham-handed, yeah. yeah. 
So, you know, from Amy Coney Barrett's point of view, I would thank God that Diane Feinstein said that because it propelled her up to a kind of a level of um, almost victimhood of, you know, that she was the victim in her confirmation hearing. Of course, she got confirmed. She wasn't much of a victim, but of, of anti-religious uh, sentiment expressed by the senior Democrat on the Senate or a senior Democrat on the Senate Judiciary Committee. Uh, I think it, it, you know, that that phrase, the dogma lives loudly within me, uh, showed up on, you know, T-shirts and mugs and, you know, in, in the in the religious community. So uh, in a way, it put Amy Coney Barrett on the map. So fast forward to 2020 uh, and she's nominated and the Republicans were loaded for bear because they assumed that the Democrats were going to do a repeat. Uh, but something really unusual happened. The Democrats stayed on script and the script called for them to make the issue not Amy Coney Barrett's religion, but Amy Coney Barrett's vote in the Affordable Care Act case, which was going to be argued in November within weeks of her, of her then presumed confirmation. So every Democratic question, they stayed way away from religion, was about the Affordable Care Act leaving the Republicans to be kind of, you know, foaming at the mouth with their rebuttals on what they had assumed would be religious attacks on her. Uh, but the attacks never came. But the Republicans couldn't walk away from their own talking points. It was very funny if you have a kind of a skewed sense of humor. Um, and I kind of go into this in, 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 in the book because I found it um, pretty darn striking. Um, so, you know, the religious issue was never was never really joined. It's, it's, it's the last taboo in, in our society. You know, you can talk about people's sexuality, people's gender identity, people's all kinds of things that used to be considered so personal, you would never be discussed, uh, but talk about religion? No, no. So that's, that's the lesson that emerged from this, I think. And why is that? Why is it the last taboo? Well, that's, that's above my pay grade. I mean, but it's just my observation that, um, uh, I mean, that's a really good question, but you have to ask somebody smarter than I am. But I, I, I think that, uh, I think there's no doubt that I'm right as an, you know, as a, as an observer of the passing scene. It's what we, I mean, the fact that there are seven Catholic justices, I'm including Justice Gorsuch, who now is an Episcopalian, but he had a Catholic upbringing, and in fact, went to the same uh, fancy Jesuit boys prep school that Brett Kavanaugh went to. I mean, so six of the Catholic justices, those other than Sonia Sotomayor, um, happened to be from the conservative end of the Catholic spectrum, right? I mean, Catholicism in America is a big tent. They're, you know, I'm not assuming that everybody, uh, you know, sits in the same part of that bus, but, um, but the conservatives on the court do. Why is that, you know? And what I say in the book, which is my belief, people can argue with me about it, is that Catholicism has become the proxy for how would you vote on Roe against Wade, right? I mean, every president since Reagan has run, every Republican candidate for president since Reagan has run on a party platform pledging them as president to appoint 
judges and justices who would overturn Roe against Wade. I have to leave out Donald Trump because, of course, in 2020, the, I mean, in, in 2016, the Republicans, I guess in 2020, the Republicans didn't even bother to have a platform. So he did, I can't say he ran on a platform. But anyway, you know, a, a, a president can't really ask a potential nominee, by the way, how are you going to vote on Roe? If asked such a question, a potential nominee could not answer it. So you use the religion as as a proxy. And and that's why uh, all six of the conservative Catholics have been named by Republican presidents. And that's where we are. It's a very surprising outcome, really. We only have time for one last question, and it's it's this for me. I am so curious about how you have stayed on this beat since the 1970s and what it is about covering the Supreme Court that has kept you so interested and captivated over the years. And I say this particularly because you you didn't actually go to law school. Now, of course, you have a, a master's in law from, from Yale, but you're not a trained lawyer. And I'm wondering if that's part of it. And if in some interesting way, maybe not being a lawyer is an advantage, is, has proved to be an advantage for you. But regardless, I'm curious to know what it is about, about this beat that has kept you so interested for all this time. Yeah, no, I don't think it's a matter of not being a lawyer. Um, I've had certainly a lot of adult education in the, all these decades. Uh, you know, I started out wanting to be a political reporter, and I was uh, in my early years at the Times. I covered the state legislature uh, in, in Albany, New York, and you know that was that's what I thought I was doing. And, and ending up covering the Supreme Court was was a bit of a happenstance, uh, but. What's kept me interested? Well, the court is really a window on the country. It's not divorced from politics. I never thought of it as divorced from politics. And so anyone who's interested in how the country works, I think would of necessity be interested in the role of the court and what the court was doing with the issues that reach it because these are issues that are roiling the country and troubling people in some in some degree. So I feel like I've had a ringside seat on the unfolding of the American story uh, for the decades that I've been deeply immersed in the life of the Supreme Court. And I feel very lucky, actually, to have had that, that opportunity. Well, Linda Greenhouse, I think we are the lucky ones. And I just want to remind everyone, if you've not already bought this book, to immediately pick up a copy. It is called Justice on the Brink. The Death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, The Rise of Amy Coney Barrett, and the 12 Months That Transformed the Supreme Court. Thank you so much for being with us, Linda Greenhouse, especially in this incredibly exciting, tumultuous, and cataclysmic week on the Supreme Court. I wish you the best of luck on the rest of your book tour. Thank you so much for stopping by and being with us at the Commonwealth Club. And yes, I just wish you wish you all the best, and thank you so much for this wonderful conversation. I'm Laura Bazelon, and we are now at the end of our program at the San Francisco Commonwealth Club. Thank you so much for joining us. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.